And I do think that sometimes is a miss in healthcare design in general, where clients and other architects are not really focused on the actual community they're serving and really understanding who they are. It's more like, I assume I know who they are instead of really digging into it. Hello, everyone. This is Bon Q, and welcome to another episode of Design Lab. On this show, we like to explore the question of how might we design healthier lives. On today's show, our guest is Abby Clary. She supports the growth and development of Canon Design's global healthcare practice. She's responsible for overseeing more than $2.5 billion in healthcare projects over the last 22 years. And she's really become an expert at helping organizations rethink their strategies and facilitate investments to better respond to consumer expectations and achieve new levels of business success. Her passion lies in the realms of academic medicine and translational health sciences. She helps institutions break down physical and cultural barriers to push innovation and medical breakthroughs forward. Abby is all in on design thinking cognitive diversity, storytelling, compassion, and doing the right thing. She's passionate about women's issues and equality in the profession, and she consistently pursues opportunities to encourage diversity in all its embodiments. Thank you, everyone, for giving us a five stars on Apple Podcasts. This is the way that you as a listener support this show. And we love when you give us a shout out on social media. On Twitter, we heard from Dr. Jay Rubenstein and Marsha Widdick, MD. I wanted to let you know that in the beginning of the show, we had a few difficulties with the audio, so be patient with us. Just wanted to give you that heads up. And here's my conversation with Abby Clary. Abby Clary, welcome to Design Lab. So I read as a child, you used to love to draw and color and that your parents even encouraged that love of drawing by having you enroll in a mechanical drawing class and oh my that gosh. inspired you to become you an architect. I like to do some R&D. <laughs> well, that is true. It is true that it was the, the beginning of my, I guess you'd say my architectural career. I was in, I want to say it was sixth or seventh grade. And that's when you start getting electives and they start sort of moving you into that train of thought in school. And there was a choice between literally home ec and mechanical drawing. And I knew all of these people who had done the mechanical drawing and they'd gotten C's and D's. And of course I didn't want to get a C or a D and home ec. I knew I could hit a home run in. And I told my parents that was the one I was going to pick. And they both looked at me and said, no way. There's no way that you are doing home ec. You're going to do mechanical drawing because we see you draw and we know how much you love it and we think you should do this. So I did and I absolutely loved it. It was, and I got an A. So Yay. that was good too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that was the start. I love that story. My daughter has been, she's interested in art and drawing and we had encouraged her to develop those skills, which is unusual because my wife and I are both physicians and we're like, we want you to become a doctor, but she's really developed this visual language at an early age. And I see it like come across in her interest. She's a freshman in high school. So I love that story that your parents encourage you to do mechanical drawing. That's an unusual class for middle school though. It is an unusual class. We actually, it, it ended up being, we did mechanical drawing. So we learned how to make perspectives 
and how to build boxes and that kind of thing, but hand-drawn. And what's interesting is my children who are, I have twins, I have three, but the twins were in sixth grade. This year, they had a class called design, which taught ideation. They used like a AutoCAD type program that taught them how to build. They build built like widgets and learned how to do dimensions. It was really interesting walking through, I was helping them with the class and talking about how to develop a design idea, mm-hmm. how to research the design idea, how to prototype the design idea. I mean, they did all of that as 12 year olds. So amazing. I think, thank God, the school districts are starting to see the value that design brings because it'll help them think differently about things and thinking about your daughter and what you're doing with Design Lab and trying to mix art and science. I mean, obviously that might be a perfect place for her. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I tell her that education is so siloed. You almost get you almost get pigeonholed into, are you the science mind or are you the creative artsy mind? And then those tracks become, I guess they kind of start out at a very early age. So we were trying to convince her to like, hey, you could be both. You could have both a science and an art mind in your life. You know, that's, that's such a great point. And I think about when I went to University of Colorado for my undergrad, and at some point during that, that four years, I thought I didn't want to be an architect because I was running into these places where I didn't fit. Like, I'm not designer with the big D, right? I'm not the person who comes and takes the white piece of paper and draws it. And that was the focus in college. And I just wasn't that great at it. And so I was going to quit. And again, enter the parents (laughs) who said, no, you're not. But I wish that in college um, and even graduate school, that there had been conversation about all the other things you can do in design and how you can use design to influence your either your your career or the work you do no matter where i mean i think about what i do now and i think i could use this design sort of i guess spirit or philosophy to do a whole bunch of different kinds of jobs so i just i I do wish that silo didn't exist in architecture school because design is so much bigger than buildings and i think they miss that mark quite a bit i love that point let's let's continue on that thread of I think people have a misconception of what architects and designers do that when you think of an architecture firm and an architect, they think, oh, you're going to actually do those blueprints and design a building, but it's so much more than that. And I've heard you say that you want your company, your firm to be thought of as a design thinking company. So what does that mean? How does an architecture firm become a design thinking company? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And it's, <clears throat> it, there is a, a major culture shift that has to happen for sure. Because I think in your comment that there is a misconception around architecture and design, I think even architects sometimes don't realize the power they have in design because they have been trained to focus only on the building, right? So it can design, there's so many reasons why we're starting to think about design consultancy versus architecture. And probably one of the biggest is that architecture continues to get commoditized and people are losing the understanding of the value of that service and that it is a service and it's not a buy it off the shelf. And that's probably, that's driven by a million different things, including architects ourselves. We've done much of our own damage, but in order to elevate, I think the value of design, we have to start educating our clients differently about what it does. 
And so as we think about moving from architecture, we'll never leave the built environment. That always will be part of what we do, but we wanna take one step higher and start thinking about design as a problem solver, which means that a client could come to us and say, you know, any problem. And we use a, a certain philosophy and approach that helps first define the problem, define what the potential solution or idea is, and then decide if the implementation is architecture and then continue that sort of philosophy into the design of the thing, whatever the design of the thing is. And making that transition also requires us to have different types of people in the firm, right? Your traditional firm has architects, interior designers, engineers, and then a few of other, the other things that support architectural design. If we're gonna to move to design consultancy, we also need industrial engineers. We need social anthropologists. We need data scientists. We need people who have worked in healthcare, specifically people who have worked in the healthcare arena. And we have to build our teams differently. We can't just say, okay, we're gonna have a designer, architectural designer, a project architect who does the technical aspect and the engineer. Our designers could be not architects anymore quite frankly. They could be industrial engineers leading the design process with an architectural designer embedded in that project. So I think we got to build our teams differently. We have to think about how we inform the design differently. We have to use research better. And I'm going kind of long, but we also have to think about who we're designing for in a much more robust way. That's fascinating. So do you have any stories of how you may have entered into a relationship with a client and they think, well, we just need a new building or we need more square footage. And then you think, is that what you really need? Because I see this in healthcare systems a lot where the volume is increasing and then our instinct for the solution is to go, hey, we just need uh, more beds. We, do, we need more square footage. But it may be something like, well, well, let's look at our existing facility. Do we need it? to increase square footage or can we repurpose some of our areas? Yeah, yes, absolutely. There's lots of different ways that happens. So in the, the last part of your sentence around, do we need more space or do we just repurpose? We have a whole group, a consulting group in our practice that looks at just that. So you could imagine an emergency department and they think, oh, we need more emergency bays. But we, a lot of times we'll come and look at throughput in the emergency department and try to understand workflow, try to understand how they're staffing. And many times it's not, it's actually underutilized, but they're not staffing it appropriately or they need to move things around or they need to move one wall. So that's an example of an operational part that, that we always do first. And we will say to a client, time out. You don't need to spend the money on this because you'll be better off changing your workflow with these couple of tools and it'll be better. So we definitely do that. I'm thinking about a, a, a project that I worked on in my career that the client thought they wanted one thing and then we did a bunch of research and found something else. So I did a project on the Southwest side of Chicago in an underserved population, lower socioeconomic population. And this client had a novel idea of a community center. And he had talked, the CEO had talked to all the leaders sort of community leaders and was starting and understood his community to a certain extent. We came in and did ethnographic research to understand how the community actually defines health and wellness, which was different than you might imagine. So their definition of health was social well-being. So access to fresh produce and, and fresh uh, food, access to public transportation, access to daycare 24 hours a day, places for their children to play safely. It wasn't about getting my flu vaccine. 
So that was part number one. So then we said, oh, okay, well, they need a community center and they need a target and they need like, so we had all these sort of our reactions to it. And, and then it was again, one of those moments where we said, okay, it's not, it's not our reaction that matters. It's what they tell us, right? So we did a second research study around retail. And we did this study and basically what came, the outcome of it was there was a circle around this neighborhood that had Targets and Walmarts and CVS and Walgreens. And it was all two miles radius, but not in the neighborhood. And what was in the neighborhood was dollar stores. And of course, dollar stores are not inexpensive. <laughs> you know, I mean, getting all of your commodity from a dollar store is actually in the end very expensive. And so the, the end result was, okay, we need a community center with commodity retail, not high-end retail or even mid-level retail, like commodity retail. And all that research led to a community center that would reflect what that community needed versus where we started around what we think the community needs. And you know, that was a big transformation for them as they figured out what to do. I love that. Such a great example of uh, co-designing with the community and bringing their expertise into early on in the process. And I love this example of the emergency room because I, I work in the emergency room and often we think, well, our, our, our wait times are six, seven, 10 hours sometimes. So the gut reaction is we need more space. But a lot of times when I'm working and when, when my colleagues are in different hospitals are working, we see that we're boarding like 30 patients in the emergency department. So that means patients who are admitted can't go upstairs. And so if you have 30 admitted patients in the emergency department that you can't see more patients. So often it's more of a staffing issue that we lack the staff and we are not appropriately doing transitions of care when we have an admitted patient who's holding a bed that they should be upstairs on the hospital floor. So we don't actually need more rooms. We just need better staffing, better flow processes. So I love that you take a step back and, and do that because that's harder work, right? To, to yeah. do that with the client. Well, even more thinking of that example, many times it's the upstream or downstream departments that are affecting the emergency department, right? So it's, it could be the fact that way downstream in the inpatient environment, they're not discharging fast enough. You know, people are waiting to discharge. So that's a bed that you can't get from the emergency department. So we may then end up saying, okay, we're going to go look at your discharge process. Do you need a discharge lounge instead of having them held in the patient room? What do we need to unbundle later on that's getting becoming the barrier in the front end, right? So sometimes it's not even in the emergency department where the issue is. So there's a lot of that sort of analysis that happens. And then, of course, there's usually some sort of environmental reaction, but it's we, we try to limit that if it's not necessary. I love that. When I'm working, I often see a one-to-one -one correlation of like how many patients are in the waiting room and how many patients are admitted to the mm -hmm. hospital taking up a bed. And a lot of times it's like one-to-one, -one, meaning that there's 20 patients in the emergency department waiting room but there's 20 admitted patients. So if we could right. free up those admitted beds, we could bring those patients from the waiting room into the uh, clinical space. Well, and imagine the experience that that's driving for those patients, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that is not a good experience. And that's the other thing that we think a lot about in design, of course, is how do we design intentional experiences so that it engenders loyalty 
and they want to come back, whether they enter through the emergency department or through the outpatient and ambulatory world, that's a bad experience. And, and that's not, they're not going to come back if they're sitting in the emergency department for eight hours waiting for a bed. A hundred percent, especially during the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. So you're at uh, Canon Design and you're the director of health practice. I was curious to know, what are some challenges that are unique to the healthcare architecture space that you may not see in other sectors of architecture? For example, you're designing a museum. So what are some of these unique challenges of healthcare architecture? Well, I think it's probably the mashup of what you see in a museum and that experience part, and then still having to have the heavy technical expertise to design the spaces to be effective for good outcomes. When I started in healthcare, I didn't think I wanted to be in it because it was so highly technical and I thought there was no opportunity to do beautiful things, which is not true. But that I think that's probably probably one of the, it's not a challenge, it's how we build our teams, right? And making sure, I mean, many, many architects that are in healthcare are subject matter experts. So they have an expertise in cancer and oncology, or they have an expertise in surgical platforms. You know, so we have the way that we staff internal to our health practice is we make sure that we have those types of people. And they could be multiple. Someone could know both or all of those things. But they have to bring a technical planning expertise to understand how to lay out space so that you can do your job effectively. So the difference between an architecture, an architect and healthcare is they, they have to know the business of healthcare. I don't know if I have to know the business of a museum or maybe it's just not as complicated, but in order to help you and to hear what your issues are in the ED, I have to understand how it functions. I have to understand how patients flow through it. I have to understand your business outcomes along with the patient outcomes and not be you, but understand enough of it that I can develop environments that can actually help you do what you do. So I do, I think that's probably one of the most complicated aspects of it. You have to have a, like a one-on-one degree in like healthcare economics in order to design in the healthcare space. Cause it's so important how finances flow and the constraints of codes and all these building codes that really impact upon your design. But I love what you said about we can make beautiful spaces in healthcare and there's such an opportunity there. And it doesn't seem like that was a mindset maybe before, but especially now with the pandemic, I think there's such an opportunity to elevate the design in healthcare. And I was curious to know what your thoughts were on how COVID-19 is going to impact the future of hospitals. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a big one to unpack. Okay. So I think I would go two, two ways. One, I think the future of hospitals, we've always talked about flexibility in the in design, right? And being able to like, that's why we do universal patient rooms are set up in a way where they can either be for a med surge bed, or they can convert into an ICU bed, which between the two rooms, they have different requirements because of the acuity of the patient. So that's like basic foundational flexibility that we've done for a very long time. But what we haven't done, I think, because it was more expensive, was to put in the infrastructure that's flexible. So you think about the pandemic and how how we needed to have our patients isolated, airborne isolation, right? So that other people weren't breathing their air. And we have those types of rooms, obviously, set up in hospitals, but we didn't have nearly enough of them. And we didn't have the flexibility to turn them on and off as things, you know, as the census goes up and down, we didn't have that ability. So I think infrastructure is is an 
opportunity, but it's also it also costs money. So we have to think about that. We'll have to work with our clients to prioritize how much of that. And then on the other side of the spectrum, I do think that the pandemic has created a new focus on mental and behavioral health. And I mean, there's so much going on right now with all of us, right, sort of being isolated. And so we're focusing a lot right now how we can how we can better develop environments that can support mental and behavioral health care. And whether that's in the hospital, if it's in the school, if it's in the home or in the community, that's to me one of the biggest outcomes. And one of, a, a positive outcome of that is that I think the stigma around mental and behavioral health has been reduced mm-hmm. because it has become so unfortunately widespread that people who may have thought thought poorly of it are now like, oh, wait a minute, this is a real thing. So at least there's a spotlight on it. And now we're diving into research and in design in, okay, so what do we do with that? And how are we going to design environments in the right places with the um, right experiences to help treat mental and behavioral health patients? I think about that for this staff too, during the pandemic, especially when we had full PPE on for eight, 10, 12 hour shifts, especially our, our nursing staff who who work incredibly long hours and the break rooms are not that great. There, there are no views of nature. There's, we had to limit the amount of people going into break rooms. So there's little thought into how can we create these spaces for a nurse to take a 10 minute break during his or her like 12 hour shift and get some respite. Yeah, absolutely. I haven't seen that in, in a lot of healthcare spaces for staff. Well, I think in the past, historically, respite has been the break room. You know, I'm not sure how much respite you get in a break room. <laughs> Honestly, I don't think probably very much. Yeah. So, yeah, that is the overlay that we're thinking about is if you think if I were to build a team for tomorrow for a brand new patient unit, I would have a mental health expert on our team. And we would overlay what is it, what is what do the patient and staff need? And what is the, the type of environment that will help them mentally respond appropriately? You know, so bringing neuroscience into it and trying to understand like what is a reaction to an environment? And let's overlay that that thought process on how we design so that we we put in that space, or it may not even be space, maybe it's just access to outside. And depending on your Southern California, it may be a completely different answer than if you're in Philadelphia. So, but we, I would build everything with that type of thought process. And again, it goes back to the beginning of our conversation and the diversity of building teams and making sure that you have diverse mindsets as you're designing so that you're not missing those opportunities to make something better and, and be able to affect human behavior and, and mental wellness in the environments you're designing. That relationship is so important, especially in the health and wellness of our trainees. I think of my days back as a resident and we're stuck in these little dark dingy corners of the hospital or our sleeping quarters when we're on call. There's like uh, literally like six bunk beds and then you're around other residents and the pagers are going off constantly. You can't even sleep at night. Makes you tough. It's awful. Like, for the future. Yeah, yeah, no, not very good. Burnout is such a problem in physicians and nurses. And I think there's such a role that the built environment can play of how can we create like healing spaces for our staff or you know, how can we reduce burnout through the built environment? And it just seems like it's 
an untapped area for healthcare. Yeah, we recently um, designed a project at the University of Colorado on their Anschutz medical campus, and it's called The Hub. And it was doing two things. It was covering what you and I are talking about with regard to providing physicians and clinicians a space to go. It was also addressing a real estate issue where you, you are... I'm sure aware that physicians need their space, right? They need their office. They need to be able to research and do grants and have head down time and do their charts. So majority of, especially on an academic campus, majority of physicians want their own office. Sometimes they have two. (laughs) So, but that's a real estate issue. So we tried to address both of those issues with what is called the hub. So the hub has heads down office space that physicians can reserve through technology, right? So you can do it electronically. It has additionally collaboration space. So bringing that design thinking and allowing them to get together and collaborate together, whiteboards and white walls and all that kind of stuff. So there's collaboration space, there is sleeping space, there's showering space, and then there's just alone, like you can just go into the, the pod kind of alone space. And it was a bit of an experiment because that would mean the physicians and clinicians would have to give up their office, but they were given access to all these other things, amenities. There's also like a concierge service and food amenity. And so they were given all these other things that, that anecdotally we thought, think, and is working by the way, but we, we at the time thought would help them get what they need to do their job, but also get what they need to feel good. And so this space now, I, apparently there's 200 physicians and clinicians signed up for it. It's, it's going like gangbusters. And it has helped relieve some of the real estate issues, which provides them back some space that they can apply to clinical environments. So it was like, it's a win-win if you think about that for the university. That is so cool. Because I think we underestimate the, the impact that burnout can have mm-hmm. on clinicians because no patient wants a burnt out physician taking care of them and how how can, (laughs) if we reduce burnout in our clinical staff, that can actually lead to better care. It is just not a wellness thing. It's actually will improve health outcomes for our patients. And you've had uh, such a long career in healthcare architecture. I love the examples from your firm. And what are some of the favorite healthcare projects that you've worked on in your Mm. career? Well, I'll tell you my, my most favorite is the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab in Chicago, which is the number one rehabilitative translational health hospital in the world. And it was the first of its kind. And I'll tell you the story. Uh, it, it also was a big moment for me in my career. So there's a lot of things that make it my favorite. But the CEO there, who her name is Joanne Smith, and she continues to transform the rehabilitation industry. She saw something in me that I hadn't, somebody hadn't found yet. And I was younger, I was 36 and I was principal saying I was going to be principal of this project. And what was special there was she saw it. And even though I was young and didn't have a whole hospital under my belt, she hired me anyway. So that was the big moment for me in my career because it it changed my trajectory. And then you look at the project and the project. So translational health is, is, in the industry defined as bench to bedside research, where you're on the lab bench and you're in the Petri dishes and it gets translated into delivery, healthcare delivery in some way, which I'm sure you're aware of that. But what she was doing differently is she was trying to 
put it, or she is, I guess, not trying to, she is putting it all in one place. And rehabilitation and that type of medicine, obviously there's a lot of more hands-on and it's a lot of trial and error. The work that they do in the Ability Lab, they work with people with traumatic brain injury, loss of limbs. I mean, it's really complicated cases where there takes a lot of rehabilitation. And of course she doesn't want to use that word. She's restoring ability. And that's why it's called the Ability Lab because it's not about rehab. It's about finding your ability, maybe in a different way. And that's the beautiful part about her philosophy is I think at one point she had told me a story where it's like grandpa wants to walk down the street holding his grandchild's hand. How he does that might be different, but we're going to make sure he can do that again. So he might have a prosthetic hand, but we're going to make sure he can do that again. And so, yeah, so the entire, the, the building was designed to bring clinicians, therapists, and researchers all into the same space. So the tinker lab, like uh, maker space, the researchers heads down space and then where they actually perform the research with the therapist and clinician all happened in the same place. So she was, she's bringing the researchers into the space so that they can connect with the empathy necessary to have with the patient, but to also real time, see why it's not working instead of playing that game of telephone where they take some notes and they read about something and they're over here. And, you know, it's wonderful. It's, and it's a beautiful space. She, she was very forward thinking in the way that she wanted the space to feel. She wanted it to feel like you're in the number one institute in the world. We are technologically advanced and we're not going to give up on you. And that's, and it worked. Like, so it's a beautiful project. It's just, I'm very proud of it. I love it. I did some digging online and I saw some pictures of, of the space. It looks so cool. And it's a great principle to have when designing a space of bringing in the different stakeholders in a patient in a patient's care next to each other because it allows for that cross fertilization of ideas because so often the researcher is siloed from the you know physician or from the nurse or from the a PT or OT person and in how for, for those listening, because, you know, this is all audio, can you describe maybe some of the spaces of how they look like to bring yeah. in those people close to each other? The other interesting thing about it, too, is bringing researchers together with researchers. So they organize the building by sort of like institutes, so uh, musculoskeletal and brain. So if you can imagine, there may be one researcher studying traumatic brain injury through a gunshot and another through stroke. So they're different things, but they can also potentially discover something for each other. So them even, even being next to each other for that serendipitous discovery is really positive. So they have the ability lab on several, several on all the patient floors. There's what is called the actual ability lab. And you come off the elevators and you come out and of course, this is downtown Chicago. I want to say, I don't remember what story, but like 20 stories up and you can see the, the Lake Michigan. So you walk into this ability lab and it's a two floor space, floor to ceiling windows. So two floor high windows. And all you see is the, the lakefront, Lake Michigan, the Chicago skyline going north. I mean, it's a beautiful view. So that alone is like awe inspiring, right? So you walk in and sort of off to the left, there are these pods that were custom made by another interior design firm. 
and they are they can close and open them and this is where the researchers can do some of their work off to the side there may be a maker space that's behind a wall that has a window so there's some transparency into the work that they're doing in there so people can see and be inspired by it there's then off to the right there's all the like treadmills and zero gravity work and all the things they're doing like that's where all the hands-on work is happening with the patients and then of course there's all the other gym equipment necessary for doing rehab in the front and then there's a huge stair monumental stair that goes from first to second floor that is also equipped with a zero gravity belt so that people can start to learn how to walk up and down stairs what i love about that one is another project where we did some research and rehab not related to this but one of the things that came out of the research was how much patients didn't like walking up those little three steps i don't know if you've ever been in one of those like regular outpatient rehab places and there's three steps up three steps down and it was unrealistic it was it's not real life right and this monumental stair allows for a real life experience and of course to success and the, the feel of success and then on the second floor is additional more of that and so that keeps it connected to and, and visual presence. And, and I think part of the goal of the, the space was for people to be able to see each other and see each other's progress or not progress, but share in that and know others are there with them having similar you know, struggles and, and having similar successes. It's a beautiful space. I totally want to visit. That sounds so cool. I mean, you are designing for those water cooler moments to happen between different researchers and clinicians and some of the best uh, labs I've seen out there. I think of like MIT Media Lab just allows for those water cooler moments to happen that you may, you're having a cup of coffee or having lunch and you could speak with a researcher who's in a totally different space, but there may be some commonalities I can thread between your research and lead to some innovation at those, at that cross-section of different disciplines. So yeah. it's so important to have a space that actually fosters that. And often we're so siloed in actual different buildings. So we can never have that moment. Well, we have to think about that at different scales too. I mean, we're doing a project with a major institution in Houston where we're doing a master plan for them, which is around education, research, and clinical care. And it's the whole campus. It's, I want to say it's like 16 million square feet. So you, and I think I'm getting that number right. But you have to think about like when, when it's an academic institution like that, you want those serendipitous moments to happen everywhere, like in, at scale, right? So as we look at master planning an entire almost community, it's like urban planning. We have to think about also like all those in-between spaces making sure that people are in the right buildings, just the buildings for the right reason. And it is adjacent to the other buildings that where we can connect people. And then how do we build that circulation between that creates an experience and an opportunity for you to meet that person, not at the water cooler, but at the, the food vendor or whatever it is outside of the building. So you do have to think about that at, at a whole bunch of different levels. I love, love that designing for those collisions to happen. Yeah. And your firm does so much work on bringing in views and maximizing daylight into some of your clinical spaces. So I was like looking at the Garden Hospital at UC San Diego, the Jacobs Medical Center, the Kaiser Permanente Radiation Oncology Center, where you're bringing in light into these spaces of cancer care that are usually 
three levels below ground surface with no windows because of the equipment that you have, the MRI machines that you needed to be insulated from other areas. And yeah, can you describe some of those projects or like your philosophy of why you do that? Because it's probably more expensive, right, for the client. Yeah, that the philosophy and the why is truly around patient experience and staff experience. But in those two examples, I think that was the focus was more on, on patient experience. And today, the way that that we look at patient experiences is not just about it's not just about the environment. I mean, that is absolutely like the natural light and all that is one aspect of it. But it is the combination of that, the environment process and workflow. So what's happening with the staff around the patient, technology and how that's enabling a positive opportunity and then brand, I guess that all makes brand. So when we think about any of those projects and what is the, what is the experience that patient needs as an oncology patient? I mean, obviously that is not an ideal place to be. You're having infusion, you're uncomfortable. We have to do our due diligence and research around what is that? I mean, I can't, I'm not in their shoes. And it's not fair for me to say, oh, I can figure out what that feels like. So we do our primary and secondary research to, to really hear their voices and bring their voices to the table. And some of those voices are saying going into a linear accelerator is scary. It's scary because it's a bunker. And, and that's not fair, right? Because it's scary enough having cancer. So that's our reaction then. Okay, well then let's find a way to reduce the fear for our patients. And a lot of times I see like the pictures in the ceiling of like a tree and I'm not sure that works. Honestly, I think that's very superficial. And so we dive into the detail to try to to our best to say, okay, well, we're going to think about this differently and, and we're going to get light into the linear accelerator because that's going to make them feel more human and not like they're a lab rat going into a bunker. So, but it takes a lot of intent and, and purposeful thought in the way you put together your research and then, of course, you have to have really great designers who can come up with the ideas that say, we could still do this within a budget. Because you're right. I mean, sometimes those decisions might cost more money. Sometimes they might not. I mean, putting a linear accelerator on, on ground level is putting a linear accelerator on ground level. So then you decide, like, do I put, can I figure out how to get a window in here? Yeah, I would love the future of hospitals to be so different that when you're looking at a building, it doesn't look like a hospital but it may look like something else, just this beautiful building in your neighborhood that happens to be a hospital. And I think there is so much work that can be done around our mindsets around what a building that treats sick patients look like, because often they look like sick buildings. So you go in there and like, this is a disgusting building and how am I going to heal? And I think we need to challenge ourselves of like, what does a hospital actually look like? And just looking at some of the projects that your firm has done, I was like, well, that doesn't even look like a hospital. That just looks like a cool building. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're making progress, but there is, there's a lot of education that has to happen with our clients and they're up against some interesting challenges there. I know that there have been projects in my lifetime that, I, that were beautiful. And then the client got sort of a, a bad reputation because it looked like they were spending money on facilities instead of clinical care. So there's this weird dynamic where how do we make it beautiful? And I agree with you, like, let's not make it look like a hospital because that scares me. I don't want to go there. Changing the face and brand of that organization in a positive way and not suddenly making it like, oh, look at you and your Taj Mahal spending all that money there and not taking care of me 
as a patient. So it's a funny balance. And I think it's doable. The one thing that we think about a lot is um, placemaking. So placemaking is focused on culture and um, community and developing public spaces outside that are reflective of that community. So we take those concepts, the placemaking concepts and how you think about it and apply that in, inside the hospital. Yeah, or right at the exterior of the front door, but start to build spaces and experiences that reflect the community that that hospital sits in and public spaces within the hospital as they are circulating through the hospital that, that connect personally with my culture or my belief system. And we can start to create non-sick setting situations, right? Where you feel more like you're in your community versus you feel like you're in the hospital. So I think some, some of those types of things have started and, and progressive clients are thinking about that for sure. That is so cool. I, I love that. And because it's, no one will criticize a museum for going, that your building's too beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, think about like why you're spending so much money or it looks too beautiful for the community. I That's exactly idea. right. Uh, bringing creative places making inside of the hospital space. So what does that look like? There's like a playground in the lobby or like there's like more... Yeah, I was like, what are some examples of that creative placemaking? Well, there could be. In a pediatric facility, there absolutely could be. Let me think about what that could look like. So in in like the south side of Chicago, that could look like a cultural garden where people can grow food and access their own fresh produce. It could be a walking trail through the hospital inside to promote health and wellness. So I think it, it absolutely 100% depends on where it is and who you're designing for. And I do think that sometimes is a miss in healthcare design in general, where clients and other architects are not really focused on the actual community they're serving and really understanding who they are. It's more like, I assume I know who they are instead of really digging into it. Yeah, I, I love that. I'm, I'm so impressed by the work you do in designing our current and, and future hospitals. And I would love to work in a space that reimagines what a building that treats patients looks like. I think there's so much work that can be done in humanizing these spaces and elevating the beauty of the design of these spaces. Well, so uh, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for your work. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. This has been really fun. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Abby Clary. Please reach out to me on social media. My Twitter handle is at Bonku. My Instagram is at Dr. Bonku. And go to Apple Podcasts. Leave us five stars. Follow us on whatever platform you use to listen. This is how you support us. Thank you so much for that. Design Lab was produced by Rob Puglisi. My theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week. Thank you.